0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done.
2: the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow.
0: I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. Caroline Hyde's off today. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up on the program, Qualcomm and Apple extend their semiconductor agreement for three more years and a sign Apple's in-house chips are taking longer than expected. We'll bring you the details. And Alibaba's former chief, Daniel Jang, leaving the company's cloud division just months after agreeing to lead it. We'll have more on the leadership changes and uncertainty facing the company as it navigates a complicated breakup. Plus, we'll talk initial public offerings as Instacart kicks off its IPO roadshow and the company seeks a valuation that's a big drop from its pandemic heyday. We'll have that and so much more throughout the hour. Let's get straight to our top story, Apple and Qualcomm. This is about modems that go into the iPhone. Connecting them to the high speed 5g networks, you can see both shares this is boosting Qualcomm up three point five percent Remember Bloomberg has reported that Apple has been working on its own in house modem twenty four hours from now Apple will unveil its iPhone fifteen. The expectation was that that would be the last generation to use qualcomm 's modem not the case according to the agreement which was announced this morning for more let 's bring in bloomberg's Ian King on all things chips and Mark German who covers Apple Ian will start with you this was a surprise what are the terms of the agreement as we understand it
3: yeah i mean they didn't give the precise details what they said was look it's the same as the agreement that we have in place Um, and in terms of timing that's out until the 2026 um, model and basically uh, same again right same deal that they signed in 2019 except it's going three years longer than uh, it was supposed to
0: Let's go to the basics. What is it that Qualcomm makes for smartphones and, in particular, Apple?
3: Well, it's in particular, Apple is the key here. This is the modem. This is the chip that takes that cellular radio signal, turns it into data, turns it into a voice, and it's a crucial, crucial component that determines just how well your phone
0: works. Let's bring you into the conversation. You have reported that Apple was developing its own modem in-house. The story here seems to be that Apple's not as far along as they'd expected.
4: They're certainly not as far along as they expected. When they set out to build the modem in 2018, they were hoping to get that chip into phones beginning around 2022. That got delayed a bit through 2023, right? And you can see that in the supply agreement they reached with Qualcomm in 2019 as part of that royalty lawsuit settlement. Uh, But the anticipation was to begin getting that modem in flagship iPhones uh, by the end uh, of this year or early next year. And my anticipation is they'll still be able to begin rolling out that modem probably at the beginning of 2025, if not the tail end of 2025. And they wanted to give themselves a little bit of leeway agreeing through 2026. Now, you have to look at Apple and how many devices they have. They have several SKUs of the iPhone. They have many SKUs of the iPad. They have the Apple Watch as well. And they need to get their own modem to work in all of those different devices and also have them certified to work across the world on hundreds of different carriers in hundreds of different countries And they have to deal with the bureaucracy of that as well, the testing, the different conditions. They have to have the chip work on 3G, 4G, and 5G. And that's not something they can do in one full swoop. So my belief is they'll begin the transition with one or two models in 2025 and gradually expand that to more models across 2026 and into
1: 2027.
0: Uh, Mark, Ian, bear with me. This is what Qualcomm said this morning. In their statement, this agreement reinforces Qualcomm's track record of sustained leadership across 5G technologies and products. And as Ian outlined, the deal carries through the 2026 generation of iPhone. And as Mark, you just outlined... You think that this will be phased with Apple. Where does the modem sit within Apple's other activities in silicon? Because actually, I think what we expect in 24 hours time is more proprietary silicon from Apple going into the latest handsets.
4: Yeah, it's just one leg of the stool, right? Apple's hardware technologies organization, uh, the modem is a high priority component there. They have offices in San Diego, Cupertino, uh, multiple places in, in Europe, including in Munich, Germany, working on this modem. They have thousands of people on the effort. The person in charge uh, of the modem is actually a former Qualcomm vice president uh, who left about half a decade ago to come to Apple to work on this project, uh, Johnny Sruji, who is Apple's Senior Vice President of Hardware Technologies, who oversees all the custom silicon, uh, there's a special place in his heart uh, against Qualcomm. Uh, And so certainly this is a very important effort for Apple. They want to design Qualcomm out of all of their products. They've been working on this uh, extensively. They've run into battery life issues. In terms of where it sits in the overall organization, uh, they have their their Mac chips. And then tomorrow they'll announce one new chip, the A17 processor, that's going to be the company's first three nanometer chip that's a major milestone uh, for the company there's also going to be a new wireless component that's less significant but certainly the a17 chip uh, will be one of the core elements of the iphone 15 pro and pro max uh, announcement on tuesday
0: so qualcomm shares up three and a half percent on track for the biggest jump since july earlier in the session on track for the biggest jump since may and spare a thought for, for Qualcomm and what it means for them. You know, we, I said that this was a surprise knowing that Apple was working on its own modem, but this is good news for Qualcomm.
3: Yeah, I mean, you looked at the analyst notes this morning and they're saying this is like $7 billion of good news for Qualcomm. Qualcomm had an analyst day last November where they said, look, just take out the Apple numbers going forward. Take them out. Act like we don't have that business anymore and uh, they still do. So, clearly, that's a, a pat on the back for their... This is a very difficult thing, as Mark just explained. It's not just a case of, hey, design a nice piece of silicon. Uh, you know, There's a lot of software tuning, a lot of work, a lot of insider knowledge that goes into that. And the fact that a company with the resources of Apple cannot replicate that effort um, in a timeline
0: that they had set for themselves tells you that Qualcomm is doing a good job. All right. Bloomberg's Mark German on Apple, Ian King on Qualcomm. Thank you. And speaking of those analyst notes, let's bring in Jordan Klein, Managing Director at Mizzou Securities. In a note out today, Klein wrote the news is a best case scenario for Qualcomm, as some thought maybe Apple would only do a one-year supply deal and then move on to their own chips. Mark German just explained that. So, so how do you see it, Jordan, the, the transition using Qualcomm's modem to using Apple's own proprietary silicon based on the deal announced today?
5: Uh, well, thanks for having me. I mean, I agree with your your host is kind of what they said that uh, Apple's been working on this for years. It's taking them longer. Uh, you know, we think they're going to gradually migrate over to their own custom baseband. It's going to take them. You know, again, probably at the earliest till 2025. You know, we think it could be their lower end SE4 that could start using their own base baseband, and then they would gradually shift to other models in the lineup in 2026. So, you know, but it's years, it gives them time and, and in the meantime, you know, Qualcomm kind of sustains its leadership position uh, and, and gets the added revenue and earnings that they would have lost starting
0: next year. Uh, Jordan, I spent all of 2021 and all of 2022 talking about the 5G super cycle. Unbelievably, my mind's already going to 6G and I just wondered if you could talk us through how you see Qualcomm is positioned if we're all gonna move on to 6G and the relationship with Apple in the future?
5: Well, it's a great question. I mean, again, like I said, Qualcomm is viewed as the best company and mobile technology, and there's a reason for that. They've been doing it longer than anyone. Uh, But if you ask the company about 6G and, and people have on their earnings calls, I mean, they don't even really think it's going to be an impact until the end of the decade so you know at the earliest you're talking five six years away it's gonna take a long time for that to evolve so i think right now their focus is broadening their their revenue base uh... moving beyond mobile uh... i mean there's a reason at that, that investor day a year ago they told the wall street community to kind of take this apple business out of their revenues i, I think that they wanted to move beyond apple they want to go into automotive iot other areas of the market even pc computing um, where they can diversify beyond mobile so look it's going to be really big for them when the industry is finally ready to go to six but to be honest, I think we've
0: got multiple years be between then and now before it will really matter for the stock or investors. I've spoken to Cristiano Amon so many times about this this move towards automotive. Indeed, actually, the, the importance of on-device um, running of LLMs, you know, it's another area for, for Qualcomm. Can they maintain technology leadership for smartphone modem at the same time as trying to move and grow these other areas? Well, I definitely think they can. Um, I
5: think that they make so much profit and money from the baseband and the modem business, and really, when you think about it, i mean their their licensing business is almost a hundred percent margins it's 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 basically a license to print money and they take a lot of that and they use that to develop you know new areas of silicon new technologies and they're out there talking you know a big game about how generative a i is going to move from in the cloud in these large big data centers towards the um, end-user device and and that's where they think they'll have an edge because of their advantage in mobile processing units uh... where where they're also a leader so i, I think again the time's gonna tell if if users are going to, want to you know upgrade their phones to a more powerful mobile processor where they think they can get advantages
0: doing AI on their device. Jordan, of the universe of of chip names that that you're covering, who do you see as best positioned to take advantage, I suppose, of the capex and R&D commitments right now that are going into how technology companies of all sizes use AI within their core businesses? Well,
5: I think first and foremost, that that conversation or that answer has to start with NVIDIA. I mean, there's a reason it's almost doubled this year because they're just dominating the um, shift in terms of of processing from CPUs, uh, traditional server. Uh, chips towards global, you know, graphics processors, uh, which are much higher power, much more energy efficient. So I think you start with Nvidia, that, that again has a big advantage and a lead over their competitors. But I think as we go into 2024, companies like AMD uh, clearly are going to be in the mix. Uh, Marvell uh, and Broadcom are also big contributors, are or, or contributing to this AI investment thesis. And then I wouldn't count out Intel. Uh, and I would also look to these memory companies like um, Micron,
0: because you're going to need an, a lot of, of memory to run these systems. Jordan Klein of good to catch up and have you here on Bloomberg Technology. Thank you. Okay, so this is the market story. U.S. majors trading in the green today. The S&P 500 near its 4,500 level. The story has been outperformance in the session of technology. We get the CPI print Wednesday. In the last seven days, a new story snuck in, which is concerns about China, U.S.-China tensions, but also what's happening with the technology sector in China. Remember, the Nasdaq 100 is up more than forty percent year today. Why? Probably artificial intelligence. Let's tie this all together and bring in Linda Dussel, Federated Hermes mm-hmm. senior equity strategist. That's a tough thing to ask, Linda. But right now, from a technology sector perspective, what is driving these markets?
1: Well, I think you made the important point, which is that artificial intelligence, the AI craze, isn't really a craze. It's a revolution. And um, and as your previous guests discussed in depth, you know whether or not we. Uh, peaked out in our use of ChatGPT for the moment. Lots of companies out there are building for uh, what is going to be a great productivity enhancer. So, it's very exciting. It's moved the market this year to date. And, of course, it's had a nice little correction as well uh, into now. So, steady, steadily now, we look at it again and say, maybe it's time to get back in. And then we trade down semiconductors.
0: Linda, is an equity strategist, if, even if you're taking a macro view, how has artificial intelligence changed the data points that you look at? You know, we'll talk about the Fed and CPI in a minute, but I just wondered if you've changed your approach, the commentary you look at, where you look for information to try and understand what AI is doing.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I appreciate that question because just as a general equity strategist, it behooves me, it behooves us all to learn about AI and how quickly it might come and change our lives. So I guess the bottom line for any general uh anybody who's looking at stocks is, is the company that you're looking at grasping this or are they turning a blind eye to it and expecting it to go away? Uh, those who are investing in this, even you know, looking for companies that are hiring for AI talent is one very interesting way to look for stocks out there. Uh, and the productivity enhancement that should be expected over the next 10 years can come a lot quicker than many people think, and that's obviously going to show its way through earnings.
0: Linda, is there any specific subsector or area where you see most potential upside uh, from investments into whether it's accelerated computing or uh, into large language models, the underlying technology behind generative AI?
1: You know, that's a, that's a very interesting question. It's going to probably cross through all sectors of the economy. But when you look at, really, there's two areas of it, the information part of it, uh, the, those jobs that are highly information-oriented that can be at first helped by AI and then maybe see jobs displaced by AI uh, over years going forward. So that will be some of the more uh, highly um Paid, highly compensated areas out there. I don't know if you're a lawyer. Maybe you need to watch out here. That type of a thing. And then on the lower end of the spectrum, uh, you'll see cost cutting in terms of labor in areas that are heavily labor intensive, but that are repetitive. And that goes to the robotics uh, side of things. Yeah, your retail sales clerks, you know, are in big, big trouble. I think if I was looking to uh, to give advice to a a young a young student, I'd say you know you might want to go ahead and be a nurse instead of Thinking about going to work at the mall, for example.
0: Uh, I am not a lawyer. I did go to law school, Linda, but I know a number of startups here in the Bay Area that are looking to use AI for the review of legal documents. I think we we better also talk about China. You know, the story about China is is kind of the tension between the U.S. and, and China's central government, but AI is at the heart of that. And I just wondered how you see the latest headlines from China impacting this market.
1: Uh, well, China in general, as a place to invest, is something that people are ever more afraid of for numerous reasons, and this is just one extra thing to add to that. Uh, we want to be self-sufficient here and move lots of production here to the United States, and I think other countries around the world the same. This is going to take a lot longer than many think. Um, yes. Not being expert at this at all, but it seems very clear that we as the United States and our leadership may want to try to tamp down those concerns, and as you know, know uh, uh, some of the best actually some of the best money being spent in capital expenditures in the manufacturing side is because of things like the chip act where money's coming from, from our government to help get more self-sufficient here in the United States so we can try to wean away from China in this way but it will be longer it'll take longer than many think and you know just bringing everything back short yes. it will probably take longer than many think
0: Uh, Linda, CPI Wednesday, where is your head at with the Fed and what that means for the tech sector?
1: Well, we at Federated Hermes believe that you will see probably one more hike this this year. Maybe it's November. Maybe they wait one more time, and that is something that's probably reasonably expected. Um, you know, in in the tech sector, the tech sector that's that's a long duration asset, and uh, you really want to see. You really don't want to see real rates going up, and they've gone up fairly quickly here, as versus inflation expectations. If we're right about inflation expectations, are coming down. Then Fed, please stop raising rates. It just makes it more dangerous, yes. more vulnerable for these, for these stocks that are long duration like tech. Uh,
0: Linda Dussel, Senior Equity Strategist over at Federated Hermes. Good to see you. Coming up here on Bloomberg Technology, Alibaba's former chief, Daniel Jang, quits. More on the details next. This is Bloomberg Technology.
6: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator?
7: For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So, how'd they get it? Listen to the award winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts,
0: Time for talking tech. First up, India's EdTech titan Baidu's made a surprise repayment proposal to lenders. Almost a year of conflict over its debt. Sources say the firm is now offering to pay back its entire 1.2 billion term loan in less than six months. And Intelsat, the world's biggest geostationary satellite operator, is trying to get a foothold in a technology that's gained traction in recent years, low-Earth orbit satellites. The company has taken stakes between $5 million and $25 million in four businesses focused on low-Earth orbit to offer new services. Plus, Alibaba's former chief, Daniel Zhang, has decided to quit just months after agreeing to lead the company's cloud division and introducing a new layer of uncertainty to China's largest e-commerce company, just as it's navigating a complicated breakup. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Isabel Lee out of New York for more. What does this mean?
8: Hayat, actually this was really a surprise to many. Uh, It comes after two months after his appointment. We have Goldman Sachs saying it's a surprise. Blueberry Intelligence saying that this will likely mean that the new partners will have more of an influence in the strategic cloud decisions of Alibaba. And Bloomberg just last Monday reported that Alibaba was in talks to raise funds from China's state-owned entities. So the departure really caused some people to raise some eyebrows. And this comes after an eight-year storied career for Zhang. But not to worry, he will still be in the Alibaba's eco. He'll be running the $1 billion tech fund of the firm. But still, the reshuffle comes as Alibaba navigates this complicated and historic breakup into mini Baby Babas, as we've discussed a lot in your show. But now, I guess the certainty is really getting to the investors. Alibaba shares fell as much as 3.5%. That's their biggest fall in something like three weeks, at
0: You know, Joe Zai is like more of a known quantity to us here in the United States, at least. He's one of the co-founders of Alibaba um, alongside Jack Ma. But tell us about the two new guys, not necessarily new, but newer names to an international audience.
8: So Zhang gave up his dual roles of CEO and chairman to Eddie Wu and to Joseph Tai. So the two are close confidants of Ma. Let's go with um, Eddie Wu first. So Eddie Wu is lesser known, but he has been with Ma since the beginning, and he's a computer science major. He's credited for the development of the PayPal-like Alipay. We have Tai, he's a well-known dealmaker, and he's a Yale alumnus, and he's a former lacrosse player, if that's of any significance. And he's the owner of Brooklyn Nets. And like Wu, he was was with Ma since the very beginning. So that probably tells you that Ma probably really values loyalty. Um, But this means that the two of them will be responsible for steering a $230 billion company around after years of struggling since 2021 when China really cracked down on the tech sector. So this is going to be an interesting space to watch. It's very much, um, it's new, it's unexpected, and it's in the middle of a huge historic reshuffle.
0: All right, Bloomberg's Isabel Lee with the lowdown on Alibaba. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. Ed Ludlow here in San Francisco. A quick check on the markets. This is the picture with the Nasdaq 100 up seven tenths of one percent. Outperformance in the technology sector. We get CPI data Wednesday, and as we heard from guests in this hour, a big view to forming how we feel about the Fed based on that data print. Uh, but we're coming off a one point four percent drop on a weekly basis on the Nasdaq last week. There have been concerns about China. We're through the bulk of earnings season. It will come around again from a point specific. One of the big stories in the session is Tesla basically on track for its biggest jump since the end of January. Morgan Stanley out with a note raising their rating on the stock to overweight from equal weight, adding a street high price target of $400. Adam Jonas and co are basically saying, look at Dojo, Tesla's supercomputer and their work in semiconductors. This is going to add $500 billion or up to $500 billion of market cap. And they basically say this is like an AWS moment for Tesla. Like Amazon was able to enter new markets, like cloud computing with AWS, they see that opportunity for Tesla. Remember, go back to 2015, Adam Jonas bursts onto the scene with a 70% raise of his price target on Tesla because he saw the future being in robo-taxis. Present day 2023, not quite there, but it's an interesting call nonetheless. And... It's having a pretty big impact on markets this Monday. Right, pivoting story. Supercomputers are not the only type of technology with growing commercial appeal. Enter quantum computing, an entirely separate kind of technology with the capability to accelerate various sectors in society. I'm really excited to say that joining us now to walk through this tech wave is D-Wave CEO, Alan Barat. It's one of the first commercial quantum computing companies in the world. And Alan, I would say that's a good place to start, this misconception that quantum computing is still at the theoretical stage. It's not out there in the real world. That is a point of view that you would disagree with.
2: Uh, absolutely, Ed. First of all, thank you for the opportunity to be here today. I'm uh, I'm really excited to be able to speak with you. So you're absolutely right. Uh, most people in the industry are saying that quantum computing is years away from commercial reality. Uh, But at D-Wave, we took a very different approach to quantum computing, one that has allowed us to deliver commercial quantum computers today. In fact, we've been delivering them for almost two years now. We have over 60 commercial customers that are leveraging our quantum computer to see improved performance in a broad array of business applications.
0: Alan, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute. You've 60 commercial customers, you've been delivering computers. I look at your revenues and they are low. If quantum computing is in the real world, why are you not booking more sales as a real commercial product?
2: Sure. So, So first of all, commercial quantum computing is still early. In other words, even we were not commercial until a little over a year ago. So we've achieved that milestone and we are now getting started building the business. We have seen our bookings accelerate quarter over quarter for five quarters now. We have seen our average deal size grow significantly from tens of thousands of dollars to well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And we are supporting applications as far ranging as employee scheduling, e-commerce delivery, customer loyalty rewards optimization, optimization of marketing campaigns, even improving the performance of shipping ports. So it is early days, but we're off to a great start, and we're really excited
0: about the prospects for the future. Alan, the, the basics of quantum computers, if one can say such a thing, is that they use quantum mechanics to carry out calculations as opposed to with with sort of higher efficiency than supercomputers. What is it about D-Wave that is proprietary? What is it that's unique about your technology?
2: Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, we've taken a different approach to quantum computing from everybody else in the industry. And in fact, we're the only company in the world that pursues quantum computing in the way we do with the technology that we have developed. And we've developed that technology entirely ourselves. Everything from uh, the design to the manufacturing of the quantum computers to the software for programming the system, all the way up through the quantum cloud service, which is the vehicle by which our customers access our quantum computers. We've designed, we've developed, we deliver that ourselves, and we have extensive patent coverage for all of that technology. We have over 200 US-granted patents and over 100 in process worldwide. That space for quantum computing is owned by D-Wave.
0: Alan, a few weeks ago we had a company called Phasecraft from the UK on the program talking about their work in quantum algorithms and quantum computing. And one of the observations made by their founder was that China is making progress in the field of quantum computing, but that it is a cooperative Initiative globally for those in the field. Could could you speak to how you view China's progress in quantum computing? Um, because as you un, as you know, you know China right now and its access to technology is a mainstay of the news cycle.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right, and in fact, this is a real concern. Um, China is investing over fifteen billion dollars in quantum computing. Uh, I was in Europe. Uh, last week, actually, I was in the UK, Switzerland, Germany. Uh, they're all investing heavily in quantum computing. The UK, over $4 billion in quantum. Unfortunately, the U.S. is currently investing less than $4 billion in quantum computing. In some sense, we're the laggard in this space, and we absolutely must get our act together because this technology is going to fundamentally transform the way businesses operate and have a huge impact on um, the, the social and the economic environment, and the U.S. must accelerate its investment in this area.
0: All right, Alan Barat, CEO of d wave thank you for joining us here on Bloomberg Technology. All things quantum computing, saying that word more and more. Now, coming up, Techstars CEO Mael Gave joins us to talk about the outlook for the early stage funding ecosystem. They're changing how they do their accelerator program. Want to understand why? That's coming up next. This is Bloomberg Technology.
6: Easier said. Done.
7: Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams-Hurd, the host of Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, *In Trust* on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts,
0: All right, it is a big week ahead for IPOs in the technology sector. Let's kick it over to New York City, where, who else? Bloomberg's Chinali Basak has all the latest. Shinali.
9: It certainly is a big week. We're going to zoom in on Instacart, because it's setting the stage for an IPO that could value it at up to $9.3 billion. But here's the thing, that is less than a quarter of what it was worth at the height of the pandemic. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Katie Roof to break it down, because Katie, we are looking at this Instacart IPO, and it is not the only one that might be facing a downright. Sure,
10: so, um, you know, Instacart was well aware
9: that the market conditions have
10: affected its valuation. They had lowered their own internal valuation, which is the 409A valuation, to $13 billion last year due to market conditions and possibly due to their own slowed growth. Uh, But, you know, some people are saying that bankers may be trying to price these things conservatively in order to ensure a pop uh, so that it's well received in the market and
9: therefore opens the window for additional IPOs. Well, another example of this would be, for example, Clavio, which even with a valuation that's closer to where it was last in private rounds, it is still lower. But they are bringing in some interesting, massive names at the beginning. BlackRock, Alliance, Bernstein. What does this say about the model to taking companies public now? Sure. And so I think at this point,
10: most people in the tech industry are no longer in denial. Uh, the market has been in a correction for over a year now. And so companies, you know, are, are aware, especially if they're coming to market, that it's not going to look like 2021. And so it looks like a lot of them are accepting that. But, you know, we'll see. I mean, with Clavio, especially, they're so close to where their last valuation was from last year that, you know, they may end up being a $9 billion
9: company or more if, if they do pop on that first day. Now when you think about Instacart, Sequoia, D1 are among the largest investors, Tiger Global, Kotu, two very well-known Tiger Cubs that have been investing in these uh, IPO, these hot pre-IPO companies. How important is this Instacart listing to them? Well, they're going to make a lot of money regardless because these are firms that
10: invested, uh, especially Sequoia. Uh, you know when this was a you know a very young company, um, and so depending on what share price they got in, it's still going to be for most of them. It's going to be you know a lot lower than where it's trading at. Um, you know some of the ones that invested at 39 billion valuation or whatever. I mean they're going to lose money on those shares unless there's a gigantic pop. But um, but overall. You know, I'd have to do the math, but if you're investing when, when
9: it's, you know, a dollar a share or less, uh, you're going to make a lot of money. Bloomberg's Katie Roof all over it, breaking a lot of news in this market. Thank you, to you for your time. Ed, back to you.
0: Yeah, my thanks to you, Bloomberg Shnali Basak, alongside Katie Roof there, as Shnali said. That's one end of the scale, pre-IPO where IPOs imminent. Let's go to the other in today's VC spotlight. Techstars, the largest pre-seed investor in the world, is making some strategic changes to the way it operates its accelerator program, starting with a move to a two-term schedule. Let's get more details on that from Techstars CEO, Mao Gabe, who joins us now. We had Gary Tan on the program on Friday summer 23 class of Y Combinator came to a close and he was talking about what was different this time round very interested to hear from you that you are also thinking a bit differently about the Accelerate program explain what you've done
11: yeah, absolutely. First, thank you for having me on your program. As usual, that's a pleasure. Uh, so the, the big news for us is that we're moving to a two-term model for our experter program starting in 2024, and what it means is that our experter programs will now start together and end together twice a year. And so the first spring term, which we're about to uh, which we're about to open, uh, will be running 22 programs in 16 cities across five. countries countries. countries. And we will also have a remote program. And a lot of this program will be uh, in partnership with uh, corporate entity like JP Morgan or Audi and a few more. So that's the big change.
0: You and I were on stage together at Startup Grind earlier in the year. And I asked you a question that elicited such a response from the audience afterwards, which is how do you find candidates? How do you go out and find the right pre-seed stage companies?
11: So, we're, we're lucky to be a very well-known brand, and, and a lot of entrepreneurs around the world know that uh, they should come to us if they're interested in getting a first check, and uh, we receive thousands and thousands of applications every month, um, and so we go through this application. What is very specific to Techstars is that we have local teams in the different countries that I mentioned before. And so we have the opportunity to meet in person with these entrepreneurs on the ground, whether it's New York, Seattle, San Francisco, but also Paris, London, Tel Aviv.
0: Uh, Mael, you're joining us from the Middle East. I believe you're in Saudi Arabia right now. We know all about Saudi money in growth stage. Companies, but you are looking at the very earliest stage of Saudi founders. What is the, the landscape like there?
11: So it's still a very early, very young ecosystem. Part of the reason why we've been active in the Middle East for a little over five years, running accelerator programs and making investments in the region. We now have over 60 investments in the region. Part of the reason why we're there is because We are usually building the deal flow that then the VC industry invests in. And when we came here, part of what we were asked to do was to go and find entrepreneurs, find people who wanted to be entrepreneurs, find women who wanted to be entrepreneurs and help them get there, help them be VC-backable.
0: There has been a debate among venture capitalists on the pros and cons of partnering with Saudi LPs or taking money from Saudi LPs? Where does Techstars sit on that debate?
11: We are an apolitical organization. We we basically, we go where we believe that we can help entrepreneurs. Uh, we, we have deeply rooted into our culture and into our mission uh, the idea that talent, uh, and ideas are evenly distributed around the world, but opportunities are not. And so whether it's the US, Canada, Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia, or Japan, when we see an opportunity to go and support founders on the ground, uh, we, we go there.
0: One of the things that Gary Tan reflected on on Friday was that 35% of the Summer 23 class was an AI-focused startup, but by the end more than 50% were looking into AI in some way. Is there any number you can give us about where those sitting in your accelerator program are proportionately are focused in AI?
11: The, the number are fairly similar. The, the, the challenge is always to distinguish when AI is the core, the core business that you're investing in versus uh, an enabler of the core business. When you look at our latest investments throughout 2023, the vast majority of companies have leveraged AI in one form or another, and about 20% of them, 20 to 30% of them have AI as the core of their business.
0: My colleagues Shanali and uh, Katie Roof were talking about everything that's to come this week in, in the IPO market. I know that you're investing at the other end of the scale, but you've been through so many markets. And I just wondered if you'd give us your perspective on how much of a starting gun this week is for tech IPOs in 2023.
11: This is an important week, if anything, because the entire tech ecosystem has been waiting for that week for a very long time. There hasn't been really any significant IPO um, in, in the last 12 months, and so everybody's watching what's going to happen. Is there going to be a successful uh, Instacart IPO, which will give increased confidence to venture capitalists and to uh, venture-backed firms to go and get ready, or is it going to be uh, very very, very tuned down. And in that case, uh, the companies are probably going to wait a little longer to go to go public. So big week. And
0: and, and finally, you have access to just an astonishing body of data, real time data about the health of very small companies around the globe. You know, how has the the pre-seed market held up, you know, over the volatility of the last 18 months or so?
11: The early stage uh, founding ecosystem has cool quite substantially um, with obviously the exception of artificial intelligence and climate tech. Having said that, if you look at pre-seed, the valuation have remained fairly stable. There continues to be a really great deal flow for pre-seed investors, lots of innovation driven, not just by AI, but also blockchain and nanotechnology. And so all in all, compared to growth stage company that really took the biggest hit so far, the early stage pre-seed type of companies have been fairly protected.
0: Techstars CEO Mael Gave investing in thousands of early stage companies across the world. Thank you for joining us. All right, today's going viral. You know what we're talking about. The US Open, Novak Djokovic and Coco Gauff taking home the champion titles over the weekend. But about 15 million customers of spectrum cable TV were not able to watch as ESPN, ABC and their sibling TV channels showed blank screens amid a, dispu- a business dispute with charter communications however breaking news this morning a deal has been reached ending the blackout for millions of pay tv customers hours before the first broadcast of monday night football making bloomberg technology producer jackie lopez a very happy jets fan let's get the important details as disney shares on the move bloomberg's chris palmeri who leads our media coverage joins us from
12: la what do we know well, you, you can see the market reaction. Disney's up a little, Charter's up a lot. It looks like Charter got much of what it wanted. Two big takeaways here. Charter wanted to include Disney streaming services in their basic cable packages at no additional charge to customers. It looks like that's happening. So for sixty dollar, the $60 a month package of cable channels, you get Disney Plus with ads thrown in there. Similar deal for the people who pay more for ESPN Plus Also when they launch an online version of ESPN, the Papa channel, if you will, which Iger, Bob Iger, C- CEO of Disney, has said they would, that will be included in the cable uh, bundle as well, yes. so big win there. Other big surprise here is that a lot of these lesser channels are off the Charter system, and some of them are pretty well known, uh, FXX, a spin-off of FX, Disney Junior, Disney XD, Freeform, which used to be uh, AM, uh, ABC Family Channel, uh, those won't be available to Charter subscribers. So you have the share reaction. Charter- more markedly Disney
0: up a percentage point you get a a knee-jerk reaction in the Bloomberg Jackie Lopez index because she's excited but here's the bit in the story I don't understand there's a more narrow lineup on spectrum so it's not
12: all good for charter right No, what that means is they traded, uh, yes, subscribers to Charter won't get those channels anymore, but they used to have to pay for those. And and the game in cable TV for a long time was let's create these spin-off channels and you get more money from the subscribers, you know, but you just don't have Disney Channel, you have Disney XD, Disney Junior, and, and those marginal channels are going away because the cable bundle costs so much and, and that strategy isn't working anymore. And to see all of those channels dropped by the second largest cable provider is big news. It, it really signals uh, that those, those channels will probably see a lot more of them fading away.
0: Yeah. Yep. They still get Nat Geo. That's important. Bloomberg's Chris Palmieri. Thank you very much. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. You can recap the show on our podcast, where you get it, whenever you get your podcast. Apple, Spotify, iHeart, and of course, on all of your Bloomberg platforms. From San Francisco, this is Bloomberg Technology. Do you love
2: Elon
3: Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea From Bloomberg Business Week, this
9: is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.